Again, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And as you find your way there, we are, if you can believe it, in the home stretch of Mark. And you might think there's five chapters left. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, but this is really uh, the ending of Mark. It begins here. A third of the gospel of Mark, chapters 11 to the end, are all about the last week of Jesus' life. So one-third of the gospel of Mark uh, is about the passion week of Jesus, of his entry into Jerusalem, his interaction with the disciples and the people during that week, and then ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection uh, at that, uh, the end of that week uh, during the Passover in Jerusalem. So we're going to be transitioning into this, a lot of different teaching that Jesus does this last week, but it's very interesting and encouraging and really is what Mark has been building to as Jesus is the suffering servant king. So if you found your way to Mark chapter 11, page 847 in the Pew Bible, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here and to sing Christ exalted is our song. And Lord, that ties in so well with our message this morning as the crowd saw Jesus and they cried out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise him. Praise him for the coming kingdom. This is the king of the kingdom of heaven. But the question is, Lord, how do we view Jesus? Is he just someone who is there? Is he an afterthought? Or do we submit ourselves to him wholly as the king of our life? Lord, help us as we come to your word. Use it to make us more like your son. Pray in his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Picture this in your mind, which I'm sure you can, because I think all of us have seen images of this. A airplane coming into an airport, a group of people excitedly waiting for somebody to get off. Perhaps it's veterans returning uh, from battle. Perhaps it's a, a relative or a loved one who's been gone for a long time. And there's signs, right? Welcome home. We love you. So glad you're here. Uh, one of the uh, 
fondest memories that I have from our ministry in Mason City was a family uh, that were very dear friends to us. Uh, they adopted a little boy from Ghana. And as they went over and as they did all of that, they were coming home, the mom was, uh, with the little boy. And we couldn't go all the way to the gate. Obviously, things had changed. Uh, and so we were there at the Des Moines airport at the bottom of the escalators. If you've been to the airport in Des Moines, you know how returning flights, they come down. And there was probably a group of 30 or 40 of us just waiting with bated breath as this mom and her new son come down the escalator. And as they did, there was cheering, there was hugging, there was crying. People had made signs. It was, it was really an amazing time. That welcoming home, that welcoming of someone you've longed to see, who you've missed, who you've, you've been wondering about, or you've been thinking about, you've been praying for, and then all of a sudden they are here. This reception, this welcome of excitement, of anticipation. As we look at Mark chapter 11, Jesus has finally made his way to Jerusalem. He's finally approached Jerusalem now in Mark's gospel. And as he enters the city, there is something that happens that I'm not sure I would have thought would happen just reading the gospel. Now, it's so familiar to us because of Easter and Palm Sunday and knowing the Bible. But if you would put yourself in the first century as a follower of Jesus, and Jesus has been going about the countryside, and he's been preaching and teaching and doing all these amazing miracles. He's finally made his way to Jerusalem. What do you think the response is going to be? Because there's been all kinds of responses to him in the countryside. There have been huge crowds, but then there have been people who've told him to leave and to get away. And there's been some persecution by the religious leaders, but yet there's been people coming just to get something. What is going to be the reception? But here we read of Jesus entering Jerusalem as a king, as a long-awaited son of David. And as he enters, we see the response of the crowd. One of, he is here, Hosanna in the highest, Praise the Lord. Yet as we read this account and everything that happens here, our minds should go to this. What's going to happen in just a few days? The same crowd that is crying, Hosanna in the highest. I wonder how many of them cried out, crucify him. So as we look here at Mark chapter 11, the front bookend of this last section here in the gospel of Mark, this is our big idea. Jesus has come to rule and reign as the true eternal king. As Mark has presented Jesus to us as the suffering servant king, we just walked through the passage of him explaining how the Son of Man has come to serve, not be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the suffering servant king. And though he suffers and though he is a servant, we better not forget that he is a king. And as he enters Jerusalem here, we see this kingly reception. And as Jesus clearly demonstrates, he knows what he's doing as he enters the city. So our big idea this morning from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 is this, is that Jesus has come 
to rule and reign as the true eternal king. The question for, for us is, will you serve him as your king? Two sections here. It divides pretty easily in verses 1 through 11. You have verses 1 through 7, which is Jesus's interaction with his disciples, and then verses 8 through 11, which is his actual entrance into the city. But as Jesus has come to rule and reign as the eternal king, he does this. We see that he is the true eternal king through the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus and the fulfillment here, and also the response of the crowd and how the people praise Jesus as king. So let's first look here as the Old Testament points to Jesus being king. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, So they are drawing near to Jerusalem. The reason why they are drawing near to Jerusalem, that this is the week of Passover. This is perhaps the, the most... Uh, uh, I say most holy, but one of the biggest weeks that is anticipated in the life of Israel, the week of Passover, the, the Passover feast. And as we understand this, Jerusalem just balloons during the week of the Passover as people come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast according to the law of Moses. And so it's not out of the ordinary that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. Like many, many thousands of others, he is coming near to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he goes through Bethpage and Bethany, two small towns outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was uh, a, obviously a, a large city in terms relative to that time. And so there are all these smaller towns surrounding it. And Bethany will serve as kind of a home base for Jesus and his disciples during the week. One of his good friends lives there. I'm sure you know who that is. It's Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. That's where they live. And as Jerusalem fills up with people, it would be hard to find a hotel room. And so knowing somebody who lives so close, such as Bethany, which is a couple miles away, that's where they lodge during the week. It was very convenient for them to stay there and then go into Jerusalem, come back, and we'll see that. But they make their way to Jerusalem through Bethpage and Bethany. And then Mark puts in this at the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're familiar with your geography and topography of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on a hill. But to the east of Jerusalem, there is a mount, a very large hill called the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus enters from the east over the Mount of Olives, He's already foreshadowing something. Because when Jesus returns in his second coming, he's going to come from that same direction. But he's going to come in a little different manner. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But he comes from the east. And as he's at the Mount of Olives, Jesus looks to two of his disciples. We don't know which two. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So before Jesus enters Jerusalem, as he's near one of these villages, he looks at two disciples and says, hey, go find a colt that's going to be tied up. So a couple things here that Jesus is doing. One, he's demonstrating, again, his sovereign 
knowledge and wisdom that there would be a cult there. It's not like he got on his iPhone and looked up, you know, cults near me. Oh, there's one here in this town. I can just go grab it. No. In his sovereign wisdom and knowledge, Jesus says to his two disciples, go into this town. There's going to be a cult there. It's going to be tied up and I need you to take it. Jesus is demonstrating here again his deity, that he is in sovereignly in control with his father over all these things. And he says, go in and take it. And if somebody asks you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it. He'll return it. Have you ever seen a movie or a TV show when the bad guy's running away and there's somebody sitting in a car and it's usually a convertible, right? And the cop comes running up and says, you know, Horton Police Department, I need your car. Get out of the car. What are you doing? Get in the car and they drive away. Um, It's like the police have need of this vehicle. And you might think taking an animal. Well, in a sense, it was kind of like, hey, I need your car. Uh, This livestock would be used to transport people or things. And so just to go up and to take it would be a huge deal. So the disciples, I'm sure, would say, but Jesus, what if somebody tries to stop us? He says, tell them that the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. All right. So they do this. They went away in verse four and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. Imagine if you were one of those disciples. I was like, just imagine like, okay, does Jesus really think there's going to be colt that easy to find? Like, and then you come into town and you're like, there it is. All right. <laughs> what was going through their mind? Are we going to have to look for this? Is going to be pretty clear, pretty plain? But it was right there, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there to them said, what are you doing untying the colt? Uh, what do you, that's not yours. And what is the response? They told them what Jesus had said. He says, the Lord has need of it. It will be returned. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Jesus, as he is making his way to Jerusalem, does something that he never does anywhere else in the Gospels. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has not ridden anything. He's always walked. He's always walked. Now, why is it a big deal that he is getting on an animal? Well, riding an animal meant several different things. One, you were... uh, elderly, you were feeble, you're, you weren't able to walk yourself. So if there was a beast of burden there, you could ride that. Or you were royalty. You had means. You had position. You had the ability to have an animal and have it be your means of transportation. Because most everybody walked. So here is Jesus doing something different. He is telling the disciples to go and find this colt, go and find this animal and bring it to him. So they do this. So it demonstrates his sovereignty and knowledge as God. But here he's also demonstrating the fact that he is royalty. For he's going to enter the city on an animal, riding into the city. Verse 7, it says, They brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. That was, uh, in a sense, they didn't have a saddle. So they put their cloaks on it as a makeshift saddle. And they uh, 
they enter into Jerusalem. And something that's also interesting about this colt, it's back up in verse 2. Nobody has ever sat on this colt. It's the idea of an unstained, pure animal for somebody who are marked but is pure and clean. So here is Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And as he has sovereignly demonstrated that he knew that the colt was there, this colt is brought, and now he's entering in the city. And I think it's important to reference, and it's why we read Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, that it is a colt. For in doing this, Jesus is specifically fulfilling something that was foretold hundreds of years earlier in Zechariah verse, chapter 9, verse 9. We already read it, but I'll read it again for you. Zechariah prophesies in this longer passage about the Messiah coming into the holy city and going to, to set things right. This is what he says in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So the king, the Messiah is coming. He is righteous and having salvation is he. And how does he enter? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling this prediction of hundreds of years before from Zechariah. And in his fulfillment of this statement, Jesus is saying, hey, you know that guy that Zechariah was prophesying about? It's me. It's me. I am the one who is your king. I am the coming king, the one who is righteous and having salvation. For I am entering Jerusalem. And how am I entering? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is demonstrating his knowledge of the Old Testament, but also through this clear and specific action that he is the fulfillment of it. And this is important for us. Because as Mark has been laying out all these things about who Jesus is, he can heal, he can cast out demons, he can forgive sins. We need to remember the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises that were given about him in the Old Testament. That all these promises of the Messiah, the, the coming King, they're found, their fulfillment is found in Jesus. It's him. He says all the promises in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in him. And Mark is recording this for us as Jesus clearly demonstrated to his disciples and to the other people. There is no second guessing who Jesus is and what he's doing. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And that's important because Jesus is who he says he is. He is the one that we must not miss. He is not one of many things for us, but he is the thing. It's all about him. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he is demonstrating that he is the true and eternal king by fulfilling these Old Testament points, these Old Testament predictions about him and what he would do. He demonstrates his kingship through his sovereignty and the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. But it's interesting. How does Jesus enter? As a king riding on a colt. 
But how would you think a king should enter a city? Trumpets blaring, the army following behind them, full of power and might and strength and demonstration of all these things, right? Huge parades and this huge production. But Jesus enters to praise, yes, but he's riding on a colt. He's riding on a makeshift saddle. There's no official welcoming from the governor of Jerusalem, but rather he comes as a humble king, as it says in Zechariah. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. For as the people wanted a conquering king, Jesus has come as a humble, suffering servant king. So the Old Testament promises are fulfilled here as Jesus enters. But then we see here how the people fulfill these things by praising Jesus as king and what they say. Verses 8 through 11. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So the crowds that were following Jesus, there were a group of disciples, more than likely more than just the 12 following Jesus, but there were also people coming to Jerusalem, remember? And they would have come from the countryside. And so they've heard about this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus, this guy who's from Nazareth, who's a son of a carpenter, who eats with sinners and tax collectors who touches people who are sick and have diseases, and yet he doesn't become sick and diseased. He makes them well. He is one who casts out demons. He's even raised people from the dead. So this guy we've heard about is actually coming to Jerusalem, and here he is with us. And so these crowds are the followers of Jesus that are with him, but more than likely, they're also the crowds that have come to Jerusalem that have been hearing word of him throughout the countryside. And here he is. And what do they do? As they brought the colt to Jesus, and as he is sat on, as he makes his way in to Jerusalem, many spread their cloaks on the road. The cloak uh, is the, the outer garment, right? Uh, we would think of it, kind of like as your winter coat, but it was a, a large piece of cloth that sometimes had a hood that was tied uh, around uh, your neck. Sometimes it had have uh, holes for your arms. Um, but the cloak was a very important thing. The cloak did a lot of things. Uh, protect you from the weather, uh, protection from, uh, from other things around you, obviously kept you warm. But they take their cloaks and they throw the cloak on the ground. What does that signify? Well, in a sense, they're rolling out the red carpet, right? They are making it a, a, a clean walkway so that this one doesn't have to walk on the dusty, dirty ground. If you think of a, a wedding, sometimes there is an aisle runner, and without fail, it gets off kilter, and those poor friends of the groom, whose job it is to pull that thing, is like, you know, they're fighting it down the aisle. But you roll down the aisle runner, why? So that the bride who is entering in her beautiful white dress, it symbolizes that she's not walking just on any ground, but on clean ground. So it's, it's clean and pure and without stains so that she doesn't get dirty. She's someone special. This is what the cloaks demonstrate. Throwing the cloaks down. Jesus walking on these cloaks so he doesn't get dirty or dusty. He's someone special along with the branches. 
Now, we understand this to be Palm Sunday, and it's interesting. The only gospel that mentions palm branches is in Matthew. So I'm sure there were palm branches, but there were a lot of other branches as well. Large, leafy branches, Mark records for us, that they had cut from the fields. So whatever they could find, they put down so that Jesus would have this road to walk on. It was an act of, uh, of submission, an act of praise and honor, laying out this quote-unquote red carpet for Jesus. Verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. So there were some before him and behind him, all around him, a group of people shouting, shouting. What were they shouting? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That term Hosanna literally means, uh, Lord, or I pray, Lord, save, or save, I pray. It really came to be a liturgical term. Uh, the idea of like, praise the Lord. It, it's, a, it's an acclamation of praise. So that's what it meant, but it kind of morphed into this, this shout of joy. Hosanna! And what are they saying? Blessed is he. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This name of the Lord is important because they are recognizing who Jesus is. He is coming in the name of God, not in his own name, not in some other teacher's or ruler's name, or in the name of Caesar. He comes in the name of the Lord. And this, they recognize that he is a king. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They've associated this coming kingdom of our father David with Jesus. Now, why is David so important? If you remember, the Lord made the promise to David that David's kingdom would have no end, that he would have a ruler sitting on his throne, one of his descendants, that would rule forever. And so the nation of Israel has always been looking back to that promise that promise to David in 1 Samuel, this kingdom without end, that was the glory days of the nation of Israel. When David went out to battle, when David conquered uh, Goliath and the Philistines and everything that followed, King David, a man after God's own heart, they were not ruled by other nations, but rather they were ruled by one that God had anointed. Those were the glory days. It's what they longed for. It's what they wanted to get back to. And so they were looking forward to this coming kingdom, reminding them of what had been and the promise that God had made. Here the crowds are saying, blessed is the one in the coming, who comes in the name of the Lord, this coming kingdom of our father, David. This echoes what Bartimaeus just said about how Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill this promise. Hosanna in the highest. It's the idea of this great superlative praise. Glory to God. This is what the crowds shout. They recognize that Jesus is God. They recognize that he is the great coming king from the house of David. And that he is offering this kingdom to them. And they give praise to him. Jesus enters. Verse 11, it says that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus here is entering into Jerusalem and he enters not as a tourist. You ever been to a new city and you're trying to get your bearings? You're kind of looking around what's going on? No, Jesus enters into the city as its king, inspecting it. What's going on? He goes to the temple. And it says, when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. It was already late in the day. The crowds are starting to disperse. And so he left to go back to Bethany with his disciples. Jesus was taking stock of his city. And we'll see that he'll clean house the next day. But he enters into a city, he takes account of it, and then he retires back to Bethany. Here's Jesus entering into the city. He is this true eternal king by the fulfillment of these Old Testament predictions and by the confession of the crowd. Hosanna in the highest, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, who's bringing this kingdom of David. Jesus clearly fulfills these aspects of the Old Testament that point him as king. The crowd praises him in his coming kingdom. But the question then is this, what happened? What happened? If you did not know the rest of the story and you read this passage, you're like, all right, here is Jesus coming into Jerusalem finally. And you know what? Jesus didn't stand up in the middle of that crowd and say, hey, don't tell anyone. Keep it on the down low. Because he's been doing that over and over again, right? He'll do a miracle and then he'll charge them not to tell anybody. Now, normally those people don't listen. They go and tell people anyways. But Jesus' mode of operation has been like, hey, don't tell anybody. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. But now it is. Because here is Jesus entering Jerusalem and he's saying, Basically, though he doesn't verbalize it, he says, go get a colt. I'm going to ride in. Jesus doesn't tell the people to stop throwing down their cloaks and the branches. No, he rides on. He doesn't silence or rebuke the crowds for crying out that he is the one coming in the name of the Lord, of the, the bringing this kingdom of David. No, Jesus accepts it. And in his acceptance of it, he is publicly saying, I am who you say I am. So if you didn't know the rest of the story, you're like, yes, finally, here we go. The king has come to his city. He's going to claim his throne. He's going to clean out the riffraff. And it's going to be good. But what happened? For we know in just a matter of days, Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus is going to be put on trial And a pagan is going to ask a crowd of God's chosen nation, would you rather have a murderer, murderous traitor or Jesus? And they said, no, give us the murderer traitor. Crucify him. How do you go from saying Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him? That only happens because of the fickleness and sinfulness of the human heart. And it's the exact reason why Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Because he needs to die 
He needs to be the, the payment for the sin of those who cry, blessed is he, and a few days later cry, crucify him. Jesus is the suffering servant king. It shows us exactly why Jesus had to come. Without Jesus, without his death on the cross, without the redemption that it purchased, without being ransomed, we are enslaved to our sin. We are spiritually dead. We live forever and always for our own selfish desires. We mock godliness and the goodness of God. We desire darkness rather than light. That's the difference. We are part of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus has come as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And he has come entering into his city as a suffering servant, as a humble one. Why? Because as he is king, he is also the suffering servant who will sacrifice himself on our behalf. They lift up their voices and praise him, and a few days later, they crucify him. And we might think, well, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. Without Christ, we all would have. In fact, without Christ, we still do that. But God in his grace and his mercy did send his son. He did die on the cross. He was buried. He was raised again. And through him, as Jesus in his own word says, I have been a ransom for many. And what does Jesus do? According to Colossians 1, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, through the redemption of our souls, through the forgiveness of sins. And how is that accomplished? That's accomplished through the man who rode on a colt into Jerusalem on a makeshift carpet as people crowd Hosanna in the highest and a few days later would crucify him. This is the true eternal king. So the question is then this, is he your king? Is he your savior? Do you realize your sin and your need for redemption? Our faith is not merely a mental acceptance of who Jesus is. The crowds had that. They, they knew, they demonstrated, they had a faint understanding of who Jesus was, but yet they obviously did not believe it. But our faith is a whole life submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the true eternal king. And if you do not know Christ as your savior, you are living in rebellion to him. And guess what? He never loses. He always wins. But the most amazing thing is though you are his enemy and though you are in rebellion against him, he has died for you. He has sacrificed himself and he is now bidding you to come and for believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died for you while you were his enemy. So do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, for redemption? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son? And as Jesus makes his way in here and as he surveys his city, as he entered Jerusalem from the east on a colt, he will return. He will enter Jerusalem again, but
but he's going to come in a vastly different way next time. He came as a humble servant riding on a colt. The next time he comes as the King of kings and Lord of lords with the host of heaven entering into Jerusalem. And this time, it is to make the crooked straight. It is to make the rough smooth. It is to make all that is wrong in the world right. For he is the true eternal king. He is king now and forever. May we serve him. And we serve him because he has served and saved us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder as these crowds celebrated who Jesus was, but yet a few days later they would turn. How often is that our own heart? Lord, if we do not know Christ, we are serving ourselves. But even if we do know Christ, there's that battle day in and day out. Do we submit ourselves to Christ or do we live for our own kingdom? Lord, I pray that with your help, we would continue to live not for ourselves, but for you through our interactions, through our choices, through our words, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and understand that everything else will be added to us in due time according to your glorious plan. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to die, for we need a Savior. And Lord, not only a Savior, but a King who deserves our allegiance. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen.